Come on now, girl. Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast. I'm Cassie. And I'm Mark, her dad. I'm an actual traffic homicide investigator currently working in South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. announcements before we begin first of all follow us on our social media please please instagram we're at can't make this shit up pod we post lots of pictures of cases and stuff as we do them so pop on there slide into our dms what what on facebook we're at can't make this shit up a true crime podcast discussion group so go in there and we you guys can all chat on Twitter, we're at CMTSU pod. Also, we still want questions. So please email us or you can send them to any of our social media, whatever's easier for you. But our email address is can't make this shit up pod at gmail.com. So last time we did our part one coverage of all the missing and murdered women's cases that have occurred on the Highway of Tears. Highway of Tears with the indigenous, the majority of them were indigenous from Canada. Right. And if you haven't listened to part one, go back. That's all of the cases that occurred in the 1970s. So today we're going to discuss all the cases that occurred throughout the 1980s. 80s. 80s was a hell of a time. It was a hell of a time. I was uh, still a young lad. A young lad. Making my way in the world. I was born in 89, so (laughs) it was the decade of my birth. Man, hell of a time, hell of a time. Now we're going to get into the depressingness that is the Highway of Tears. So our first case that takes place in the 80s is that of Jean Mary Kovacs. She was a member of the First Nation, so she was also Indigenous. Okay. There is very little information out there about her case, but here is what I was able to find. So on October 11th, 1981, Jean's... Nude body was found in a ditch filled with water by a man who was actually out searching for firewood. So okay. it's interesting because you start to see, if you listen to our the first part of our coverage, there's you start to see kind of a pattern that the bodies that are found are generally always found nude. Okay. So yeah, definitely. Okay, go ahead. I'm gonna let you continue before I start chiming again. Her cause of death was a gunshot wound to her head, but the autopsy revealed she'd actually been shot a total of four times. Upon interviewing witnesses, police discovered that Jean was last seen at about 1.30 a.m. the night before her body was discovered. She was seen at the intersection of Old Caribou Highway and Highway 16 East. And I'm not sure if she was like hitchhiking or just walking. Oh, so she was really, she wasn't really missing. It was just, she was last seen at night and then found the next morning dead. Correct. Yeah, she wasn't even reported missing because there were. Okay, so she was just a, a murder victim or homicide victim. Right. Eventually, in February of 1988, so that's seven years after Jean's body was found, serial killer Edward Dennis Isaac was convicted of Jean's murder, along with the murders of two other women who happened to be our next two victims. Really? So Jean was only 36 years old when she died. Okay. So the next victim was Roswitha Fuspilcher. Roswitha is a cool name. Roswitha. It is, but... I just like to say it, Roswitha. Can you spell it for me? Yes, so it's R-O-S-W-I-T-H-A. That's Roswitha. Yeah, that's what I said, Roswitha. I know, but I was like, wow. So 
she was only 13 years old. She was reported missing at 6.45 p.m. on November 14, 1981. So about a Wait, month. Ross Witho is a 13-year-old girl? Right. She was, uh, and I'm not sure if she was indigenous or not. Um, I couldn't find that information. I, I, they, I couldn't even find a picture of her. So I don't even know what she looks like. Well, being 13, they're not, there's probably not a lot of, a lot of information on her because she's a juvenile. So, right. She was reported missing at 6 45 PM on November 14th, 1981. Okay. So that's a, about a month after Jean um, Kovac's body was found. Okay. She had last been seen by a friend that morning at 2 AM, which I found odd because she's 13. Like what? Well, it's a little odd that she was like out with a friend at 2 a.m. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say yeah. That's all I'm going to say yeah right for right now. Her body was discovered exactly a week later on November 21st, 1981. Okay. She was found in some woods north of Prince George. She was also nude and had been viciously slashed and stabbed to death. Okay. Six years after her body was discovered, Edward Dennis Isaac was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to life in prison with a chance of parole after 15 years. For her death? Yeah. He was caught six years after her body was found. And then he went to trial, was convicted of manslaughter and only only sentenced to 15 years. And then he has a possibility of parole. Yeah, because it's manslaughter. It's not murder or... Which yeah. I don't, I'm assuming, I, I, I even tried to research him a little bit and there really isn't a lot of information out there about him. But okay. I assume it's because he confessed, so they like cut him a deal. So that means he's put, he's out now. Well, I'm. I don't, no, because remember there are oh. three murders. Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of. Oh, sorry, go ahead. So in his confession, Isaac claimed Ross Witha had been hitchhiking and he'd picked her up, and he okay. said he decided to kill her quote just to see what it felt like. Okay, sociopath. Sorry. sociopathic piece of garbage yeah okay so isaac's final victim that we know of and so uh, hold on and not to not to become graphic or anything she was slashed so i'm assuming she was like stabbed with knives and yeah okay all right she was stabbed and slashed but the first victim had, was gunshot wounds right that he was convicted of right okay his final victim that we know of because obviously there could be more right she was 15 years old. Ugh. Her name was Nina Marie Joseph. How old was the first one? I'm sorry. She was, no. she was 36. Oh, that's right. You did say it. 36. Okay. So 36, 13. And now the last one is what? 15 or 16? 15. 15. <laughs> okay. So Nina's body was also found nude. It was found in Freeman Park on August 16th, 1982. So that's nearly two years after Ross Witha's body was discovered. Okay. Like Roswitha, Nina was found slashed and stabbed to death. However, unlike Roswitha, Nina was also found with a cord from a jacket wrapped around her neck. So Nina's murder was actually the one that got Edward Dennis Isaac caught. It was his third murder, but this is the one where he was caught. Okay. Because this time he had enlisted the help of his girlfriend to help him hide the body. So okay. later, the girlfriend testified against Isaac, and he was convicted of manslaughter in June of 1986. So that's four years after Nina's body was discovered. Yep. He probably pissed her off, and hell hath no fury than a woman scorned. Although, what kind of woman is helping their boyfriend uh, hide bodies of young yeah, girls? Yeah, she's a piece of shit, too. But, I mean, My whenever, okay, whenever, there, whenever you have, like, a crime and the woman hands up the guy, it's because he fucked up or 
he did something that pissed her off and she's like i got you so well it's just interesting to me because as a woman especially i don't know how you could hurt like other women listen there's some women that are more fucking vicious than men well that's true there's a lot of listen we've 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 already covered a couple cases where the the raising of the the subject or the you know the the perpetrator whatever has definitely been negative and that definitely plays a part in in all of it and how you know children are raised and what they become but that's some like there's some fucking evil people out there oh yeah whether whether they're abused as kids or they're just fucking born fucking evil okay so in this case he said the one girl he killed just to see what it was like or to feel it. I've heard that before with serial killers and stuff like their first kill is just a, the feeling thing. But once they get that feeling or that once they have that desire and they, they do it, it becomes, it's like a dog when it tastes blood, like a, you know. Yeah. Uh, like it's easier for them to keep doing it. So the next case is um, another missing persons case of Doreen Jack. This case is, is different than all of our other previous cases because In this case, Doreen actually went missing along with her husband, Ronnie Jack, and their two sons, Russell and Ryan. Really? Both Doreen and Ronnie were indigenous. Okay. In August of 1989, Ronnie was at a pub in Prince George and met a man who offered him and Doreen jobs at a logging camp on the outskirts of town, which do you think that they, all our Canadian listeners, like DM me and let me know. But do you think that they call, like, it's kind of like England and Canada, like they call all bars pubs or was this one? Because I I think that's so cool. I wish we called bars pubs. I do too. (laughs) Because I I love, on a side note, I love Ireland and everything about it. Been there. Which we do have some Irish listeners. So, hey. We do. So, hey. And we're going to actually, we're looking for cases in Ireland. So that yeah, we where that's on my um on my. You list. guys are so like nice and good that you don't have a lot of. Yeah, you don't have a lot of cases out there, but don't worry, we're gonna do some. Maybe we should just pick up and move to Ireland. Okay, let's go. I'm ready. Let's go. On August second, nineteen eighty nine, Ronnie, okay. which is the husband, called his mother and told her about the new job opportunity that they've been offered at the logging camp. And he told her that he and his family would be heading out of town for 10 days to go work at this camp. That was the last time anybody spoke to the Jacks. So it was, for all intents and purposes, initially a, in good faith, a job opportunity for them. Right. Right. Okay. So. So no one could ever find this mysterious job offerer. So. But all four of them, it was, it was a husband, wife, and two kids were killed. We don't know. They were never found. Oh, they weren't found. They're, They're missing. all missing. Right. To this day. To this day. Holy shit. All right. The investigation is still ongoing today. The police wow. are still following up on leads t- up until like 2020. Wow. Okay. Beginning on August 28th, 2019, 30 years following their disappearance. Okay. The RCMP conducted a three-day search for the family on a piece of property located on the Sekou's Nations territory south of Vanderhoof, British Columbia. Okay. So throughout the search, the RCMP utilized experts, heavy equipment, and ground-penetrating radar. They didn't get anything? Nope. Okay. They discovered nothing related to the family. So apparently they got a tip or some type of information that possibly they need to go look there and... 
Yes. So they did get a tip, which we'll like talk about. Okay. All right. So the search was conducted in response to a tip that the police received, which premature my questioning. Sorry. Yeah. How rude. Oh, so sorry. They've not ever released what the, what the tip was to the public. Right. However, Doreen's sister, Marlene said that the lead was quote, just too accurate to ignore. I don't know what that means, but she basically implied to the press that oh. they were going to, con- even d- even despite the fact that they didn't find anything in that spot, that they were still going to like look around what the that area. Mean, well, I'm going to venture a guess to say, and only because I have obtained leads through like our crime stoppers and stuff from cases that I've handled. Sometimes you get information in relation to like an investigation that occurred probably in an area that you're looking for. And there's like one or two pieces of information that are provided in that tip where it is plausible that the person has knowledge of what occurred, but the information they're providing for you to investigate is not necessarily, doesn't necessarily match what you're looking for. So um, like we talked about in the last episode, there is information under certain investigations that is not released because if and when a subject or a person, a person of interest is apprehended or interviewed or whatever, interrogated, they want to keep that from the media, or from the public, because there have been copycat people or people that have confessed to crimes that they didn't really do. Right. So when they're interrogated or interviewed, they're asked specific questions with information that hasn't been released that they must know for the investigator to believe or know or, or confirm that, yes, this is the person that could be possibly involved or is involved or whatever. So Right. They want to make sure you're not just yanking their chain. Right. So in this case, I would say that the anonymous tip or whatever, however they got the call or whatever, had enough information that was credible that wasn't released to the public that it was like, hey, we need to follow up with this, even though the results, you know, didn't reveal anything or the, you know, the results were negative, but the tip itself had enough information in it that made it like a qualified tip or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's interesting in the sense that there was enough information for them to actually go look in this area. So they're probably onto something and maybe the area is not exactly where, you know, where they need to look, but that's interesting. Like that's, you know, I know. So at this point, interestingly, the RCMP is considering the case a murder. Corporal Craig Douglas, who is handling the case today, told CBC News that they're, quote, treating this as a homicide until proven otherwise. Nice. Okay, good. That's, I mean, that's how investigations have to be when you don't know and you have like, you know, you know, the death of a person or whatever. And yeah, the the medical examiner kind of makes a determination. Is it a homicide? Is it a natural? Is it unknown? You know, whatever. But it's up really up to the investigators based on what their findings are to, you know, to pursue or not pursue these cases. So, you know, which um, I mean, obviously, if they're using like ground penetrating radar and stuff, I, I would assume that the tip is that they're deceased. Correct. Right. Yeah. They're buried underground. I mean, they're looking for bones or whatever, because there's quite a time delay here or a time span that occurred, you know. Although it is interesting because I would, I just wonder, you know, short of him, the, the guy who offered the job to begin with, who we assume is the killer. I just wonder like what his end game was in terms of like, unless he just was one of those crazy, like sociopaths who just like to kill to kill. Why would you promise these people a job just to like lure them and kill them? Just could be his uh, like his mo, like his. That's how he lures them in to get them into a position of vulnerability where yeah. he can, you know, kill them. 
Well, the sister, Marlene, was present at the search uh, and was obviously disappointed that nothing was found. She says that she just wants closure and to finally lay her family members to rest. She said, quote, now all I care about is bringing my family home. That's it. The justice part is up to the RCMP if they're willing to pursue it. Right. And I would say that, and I tell, I tell victims, there's no, I, I cannot provide closure. I can only provide answers. And if we make an arrest and the person's convicted, I can provide justice. But when you lose somebody, a loved one, there's never a closure. Ever. Yeah. I've lost people. I've lost, you know, family members, not in a tragic way, but there's never closure. There's always questions. There's always, you know, what if. So I don't like that word closure when it comes to like death. Yeah, but I don't think there are some people use it. Some people use it. And maybe some people do get closure, whatever. But at least when what I do in my experience, I never ever I can like I can tell you how the my investigation goes from A to Z and I get a fucking I make an arrest. I get a conviction. The person gets put away in jail. But there's no closure. Your fucking loved one is still dead. I hate to say it that way, but you know, they've still there. I can't bring them back. Well, and I, I always feel the worst for people who have missing family members. That's far worse than losing a loved one to a murder, to a death, whatever, the not knowing. Like to me, that's the most worst feeling of pain or unknown is that not knowing. Right. In September of 2020, an advocate for missing persons named Jan Guppy uploaded age-progressed photos of the family on her Facebook page called Unidentified Human Remains Canada. So you guys can go on and, and look at that. So it's a Facebook page where this woman will upload basically pictures that artists have rendered of missing or unidentified. What the person remains. would look like now if they were still alive. Right. Well, that like age progress photos, but she also right. does like for, for when they have Jane Doe's that they can't figure oh, out who they are. They'll yeah. do like an artist rendering of that person. Oh, that's fucking awesome. That's good. And then you can go on and look at them and, you know, see if like, if you have a missing loved one or anything, like they may be on there. Wow. So this was literally a year ago from, well, from when we're recording, she went to Marlene and told her that she wanted to do some age progress photos of the family. Right. Uh, just in case, you know, they're still out there. Jan, you may know this person. So Jan oh. brought in Samantha Steinberg, who was a forensic artist with the Miami-Dade Police Department. Phenomenal artist. I do know her. She is ridiculously accurate. Like she's good. When I say expert, like, whew, yes. Yeah. I so agree. she called Samantha in. And she created age progress photos of all four of the family members. And since posting the photos to Facebook, Jan, the woman who started the Facebook group, Jan Guppy, she says that she received several leads in the case and she's passed them along to the RCMP. However, the RCMP have not commented publicly on the photos or on any tips that they've received as a result. So as of today, the family is still missing I'm going to post the both an actual photo of the family and also the age progressed photos. Right. I'll post them on Instagram so you can go on there and you can see. Awesome. Especially our Canadian listeners. Maybe you you run into them if they're still in Canada, if they're alive, you know. But yeah, I thought that was pretty cool that um, I thought you might know the artist because. I do know her. I haven't had to use her yet, but she definitely works with our homicide bureau for sure. Her drawings are like we get the booking photos of the subjects when they're caught. It's like fucking dead on. It's really crazy. That's a tremendous talent that she is like one of the fucking best. Um, you know, well, I assumed um, she had to be pretty good because obviously um, Jan Guppy like went to her specifically, you know, brought her in on this case in Canada where yes, 
Samantha is phenomenal at what she does. And she's, she's, she's well known in the forensic community. So, you know, for sure. So our next victim is Alberta Gail Williams. Okay. Alberta was a member of the Gitanyao Band of Indigenous Peoples in British Columbia in okay. the summer of 1989. So there's a lot that happened in 1989. Active year. Okay. Yeah, active year. So in the okay. summer of 1989, at the age of 24, she and her sister Claudia decided to move from their home in downtown Vancouver to a more rural area in northern British Columbia because okay. they had a, had secured summer jobs at a cannery there. Okay. So on August 25th, 1989, the two sisters decided to go out and celebrate their last weekend in British Columbia before they had to return to Vancouver. Okay. The sisters went to a local pub called Popeye's. I thought that was okay. a fun name for a pub. Yeah. They went with some co-workers from the cannery. When the bar began to close, Alberta was sitting at a table with a group of people who had invited her to join them at a house party. Alberta invited her sister, Claudia, to come along. Claudia asked where the house party was located, but was basically interrupted by a friend. A friend came up to her and started talking to her. Okay. So when she turned to talk to the friend, she you know, spoke to them for a few minutes and then turned back around. And Alberta and the entire group of people that were at the table were gone. Wow. Okay. So when Alberta she never heard where the party was, no, okay. when Alberta didn't return home, Claudia obviously panicked. She reported her sister missing to the RCMP. She told them that Roberta had last been seen wearing a blue sweatshirt, black pants and slip on shoes. So she went missing on August 25th, 1989 on September 12th, 1989. So that's a little less than a month after Alberta had disappeared. An RCMP officer named Gary Kerr found bloody clothes, which had been thrown in a bush near a ferry terminal in Prince Rupert. Kerr had found a blue sweater, slipper type shoes, a jumpsuit, pillowcase, two pillowcase covers, a sock, a shoelace, and a crumpled piece of paper. It has since been surmised that the clothes were ultimately destroyed by the RCMP because they didn't connect the clothes to the to Alberta's disappearance at the time. Ugh. So it wasn't until later that they were and they found this officer's report, Jerry Kerr. Right. So by, I guess by the time they realized it was connected, the clothes had already been destroyed. Horrible. Yeah. It happens. I mean, well, and it's odd because like it's odd that all her clothes were found or we assume to be her clothes, but it's also like pillowcases and pillow covers like obviously that's weird but i would say that the fact that those victims the previous victims were found in ditches like underwater or whatever nude the fact that her clothes were removed is consistent with yeah kind of the mo or you know the modus operandi of what's going on so right well, and the other thing I wondered is, you know, she was found, they also found a crumpled piece of paper, but I, I'm like, was it written on? Like, was it yeah, blank? Was say, did it say anything? Was it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I couldn't find it. I even like, oh. I tried really hard to find something about it, but that's right. the report just says a crumpled piece of paper. That's weird. Okay. But so 13 again, might be information that they're, you know, holding back. That's because, true. You know, if there's something specifically written on it, or if it's an address or, you know, something like that, maybe there's you know, retaining that just so that it's not public knowledge so that when, if, and when they make an arrest or something, you know, it's piece of the puzzle. So. Yeah. Because there are, we'll see as this, this case goes on that they are holding stuff back Okay. for that purpose. So, okay. so 13 days after the clothes were found. So it's okay. now September 25th, Roberta's nude body was found 27 
kilometers east of Prince Rupert near the Tai overpass. An autopsy revealed that she had been sexually assaulted and then strangled to death, which is interesting because if you remember, those clothes were found. They, they never released what she was strangled with. Shoelace? But the, yeah, remember that where the clothes were found, they found one shoelace. She was strangled, but was there ligature still found on her or? They didn't release it. Okay, so. Well, no one has ever been charged in the murder, but in an interview with CBC News, Claudia, the sister, claimed that she feels that she knows who murdered her sister and she feels like it was in retaliation against her, like in, in retaliation against Claudia. Really? So Claudia said that there was a man who harassed her the entire summer of 1989. She described okay. um, one encounter in particular when the man had pulled up beside her as she was walking on the road and demanded that she get in his car. She refused and he yelled, quote, get in the car. In response, Claudia yelled, no, leave me alone and ran towards the nearest house. And at that point, the man like drove off. Okay. Claudia claims that the man was actually at the pub the night that she and Alberta were there. She oh. said that the man had tried to talk to her several times throughout the night, but she ignored him, which is so was annoying. He like, was he like an, a romantic interest? Like he was trying to get, he, like, you know, yeah, he was, her. he was trying to get with her okay. and, right. and wouldn't take no for an answer, which is like so annoying. If I don't want to talk to you, that's my right. Leave me the fuck alone. All right. Get away from me, bitch. Yeah. Like stop talking to me. I agree. Like, I don't understand why some guys like cannot fathom that I'm just not that into you. Yeah. Well, why do people kill each other? Well, amen. <laughs> I'm just saying, I mean, everybody's fucking got their own, you know, whatever. She recalled, however, Claudia, that at one point in the night, she saw Alberta talking with him across the bar. Oh. So she told, she says that she told the police all of this information, as well as the man's name. She didn't feel comfortable releasing it publicly as she felt it might hurt the investigation into her sister's murder. She told CBC News, quote, I can't divulge his name. I'm not gonna. It's hard. I mean, I may be overstepping my boundaries here by doing that, where it's going to jeopardize the case, end quote. She did say that the police did tell her at one point that the man was a suspect. However, she also said, quote, I can't really say anything about names. I can just say how far the police have gone, how little they've done. She also said, quote, to them, it doesn't even matter. As long as you're First Nations, it doesn't matter. I see that happen so many times in Vancouver where I live. One person who is not First Nations goes missing. That gets broadcast all over Canada. Yep. Well, so she, she's basically implying that the police don't care because she was right. First Nations. Right. Indigenous. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, sadly, I mean, I can't speak for Canada, but historically in our country, it, it does happen. It has happened. Right. In the past, you know, it was, you know, if you're trying to report something. And I'm sure it still and, happens today to some degree. Of right. Of course. If you're, you know, if you, if you're a minority or I'm sure, like you said, even to this day, but historic, even in the, in the seventies and I'm sure way, way into the eighties, you know, sometimes it was taken seriously and other times it wasn't, you know, it just depends on where you were. And Claudia's made it very clear that she feels it wasn't taken seriously, like from the beginning. Right. I mean, that's unfortunate, but it does, you know, it did happen. It does happen, I'm sure, today, to this day, but... Well, and I'm sure it must be, like, so... Obviously, I've never been in that situation, but I'm sure it must be so frustrating. Yeah. Um, like, when you have a, a loved one who's been murdered as, 
you know, grotesquely as her sister was. And like to never, ever, at least up until now, like get any closure for it. No, anything. That's, that's the worst. Like, that's the worst thing is when you have no information. And if you have an invest, you know, like an investigator, detective, whatever, that's just not providing. Now, you know, I will say this, like there gets a point in the case where there, nothing else happens. And, you know, you make contact with the family, you tell them, listen, I've done everything I can do to this point. If anything changes or I get anything new, I will be in contact with you. And so you kind of, you know, put it to put it to the side and you continue because you're continually getting new cases, but the family continues to call and call and call even though you told them that, and rightfully so, they want to know what the fuck's going on. They want to make sure that, you know, you're still looking at her or whatever. Right. But there's, you know, there's a period of time where you're not looking at the case because nothing's come in. There's no new evidence. There's no new leads, whatever. And so the case kind of gets set aside. It's not that we disregard it or, you know, we're not looking at it, but unfortunately we're constantly, you know, we're getting new cases. We have to handle new things. If there's no new information or whatever. The case, you know, it, it sits to the side and we work the cases we can work. And then if something comes up, then we start working it again. So, you know, I can see the family's frustration and like saying that the police aren't doing anything. It's not that, you know, that's the case. It's just sometimes there's nothing to do on a case. Right. Exhausted every bit of information you have or every lead you have, you know, that we can't make shit up. You know, like we can't just pull shit out of the air and make shit up. And, you know, we have to have some, even if it's a bad tip, we need to have something to go on to go look at and say, no, this is not part of it, or, you know, it was unfounded or whatever. But, you know, family members don't want to hear that. And I totally understand that. And if I was a victim of a crime, or, you know, my family member was missing, then I would expect everything to be done daily. But that's just not the reality of, you know, of how it goes. You know, it's very sad. It's just, uh, you know, a lot of departments, like, I'm lucky to work in a department that's very large and has a lot of resources. There's a lot of departments, especially, you know, in throughout the United States, I'm sure Canada, probably, and everywhere else in the world, smaller departments don't have the resources or the money or the time or the personnel to pursue these matters the way the family members want them to pursue it. You know, yeah. and that's, you know, that's the reality of it. And that's when private investigators, armchair sleuths and stuff get involved. And, you know, sometimes... yeah, you hear, you hear that armchair sleuths. Yeah. Like that's, sometimes... that's, that's when you're called in. Yeah. Sometimes they help. I mean, because. And some podcasts have helped. Hey, I'm all for that. Well, speaking of podcasts that are uh, help, this case actually has a podcast about it. That's really good. So if you guys want to listen to it, if you're into finding out more about that case, the podcast is called Who Killed Alberta Williams? So I guess there's about eight episodes. I recommend listening to it if you're interested in finding out more. probably get into a lot of detail about specifics. That's awesome. That's good. Okay, so we have two more short cases in the 80s. So this next one's kind of bizarre for a specific reason that we'll find out at the end. There's also very little information about her name was Cecilia Ann Nickel. She was 18 years old when she went missing. She had moved to Vancouver on August 1st of 1989 to live with her mother, but her mother later- yeah, I, I told you, for some reason, yeah. all the case, majority of the cases in the 80s happened in 89. Okay, all right. She had moved there to live with her mother, but her mother later reported that she had moved out two months later in October of 1989 to, quote, live on the streets. That's okay. all that's, I, there's never been anything released about, like, why she wanted to live on the streets. So she left the house two months prior to her being reported as missing? No. So oh. she moved to Vancouver okay. in August, August 1st of 89 to live with right. her mother. 
Okay. But her mother later reported that she had she got there August 1st, but two months after that, which was October of 1989, she left that she'd only lived there for two months and then left to oh, live on she, the streets. Oh, so she decided on her own, I'm not living here anymore and went out. Right. Because okay. she was she was an adult. She was 18. So right, right. Okay. Right. Um, so another family member later claimed that Cecilia had moved from Vancouver to Vancouver Island okay. after leaving her mom's house, but that was never confirmed by police. Okay. The last time she was seen is reported to have been in Smithers, British Columbia, near Highway 16. So at the time of her disappearance, Cecilia was 5'4", 128 pounds. She had she had black hair and brown eyes. Um, okay. She is First Nations, but her specific tribal information isn't known. It's unknown. Okay. All right. But this is what's bizarre about the case. Cecilia's cousin... Roberta Cecilia Nickel. So they even her, it was Cecilia, the older cousin. Name. Yeah, they share a name, which is odd. Okay. Her cousin, Roberta Cecilia Nickel, she also went missing and was eventually found murdered along Highway 16 a year after Cecilia went missing. What? So we'll be covering Cecilia's case in our next episode because it's, it, she oh. was found, she was found in the 90s. But yeah, isn't that strange? It is like, there's something going on with, what are the odds that that's a coincidence? Like, it's almost like whoever abducted Cecilia, like, knew her cousin. Yeah, like, it's like the coincidences are crazy, you know, like, next to each other. But then you have other ones that happened prior, like, years before that, you know, like, that are similar or whatever. And you're like, what the, f-? like, I don't know. Yeah. It's, that is, that's wild like that. So this is the final victim of the 1980s. Okay. 18-year-old Marnie Blanchard. Is her name on November 22nd, 1989? Marnie went to the Rock Pit Cabaret in Prince George. Okay. When the cabaret was closing, she was seen getting into a gray Toyota pickup truck with a white canopy outside of the bar. The driver was described by witnesses as having black shoulder length hair, which is a red flag. We've talked about it before. Men with long hair don't like it. (laughs) Okay. Don't, don't like it. All right. From the cabaret, the truck headed west on 2nd Avenue, and that was the last time Marnie was seen alive. About three weeks later, on December 11th, 1989, a couple was cross-country skiing on an unmarked road just west of Foothills Boulevard and came across Marnie's remains, which had been scavenged by animals. Okay. Well, yeah, she'd been there. Assuming she was murdered the night she was- Right, the same night or the night after, right? Um, yeah, she'd been there for three weeks, so that's quite a while. Um, I mean, it was cold out, obviously, because they were skiing, but... Yeah, but um, once the animals get to you, it's, yeah. Because of the state of the body, Marnie had to be identified through x-ray and dental records. Yep. On July 26, 1990, seven months after Marnie's body was found... Right. 30-year-old Brian Peter Arp was arrested in connection with Marnie's murder. Unfortunately, although the police had some evidence... It, it wasn't enough to hold Arp, and he was released. Really? However, while he was in custody, he had provided a DNA sample. <laughs> but the technology at the time wasn't sufficient enough to determine a match. Right. So two years later, Arp was arrested for murdering another young woman named Therese Umphrey. Okay. It was then that Arp was charged with both the murder of Therese and Barney. Because the of the DNA, DNA match. The DNA technology had improved enough within those two years to positively match ARP to both murders. Okay. Which think to anything else? Um, no, but it's interesting because I mean I shouldn't say interesting. It's sad 
that, you know, had had the DNA technology been better, he would have never killed Therese. Right. Yeah, he would have been caught and the second one would not have been killed. Right. Those are all the cases from 1980s, which most of them were in 89. Right. That's crazy that they happened in one year, but it's it's got to be. I mean, I don't know, but you're talking you're talking. It started in the 70s. We're talking now we talked this episode was in the 80s, specifically in 89. And we're going to have another episode like 90s to even present. It's the highway of tears, but it's got to be, let's say it's got to be different people. It just happened to, I mean, maybe not, it could be the same person, but so much time is, well, no, it can't be the same person because people were caught and there's still murders going on. Yeah. Um, so it's either like copycats or just like. We'll talk about, because remember there's a, um, there was a, um, what do you call it? The group that the police formed. Task to force. Yeah, there was a task force that was made for this. So at the yeah. end, we'll discuss what some of their findings are. And I think it does explain like why uh, so many killings like happen in this okay. stretch of road. Okay. Yeah, I was um, going to say there's too, yeah, yes, too many things going on, too many differences and people are caught and convicted and it's still happening. So, you know, there's got to be a lot more to it. Well, on a happier note, our question, we have oh, one, okay. we have a question at the end. All right. Okay, so this one is from Ed. Okay. Hi, Ed. Hey, Ed. What's up? What is your favorite movie of all time? I already know what yours is, but you can go first. No, no. I want to hear if, you, if it's right or not. Gladiator. Correct. <laughs> Do you know what mine is? Les Mis? The movie? Hell no. The play, oh, though. That's, oh, okay. that's something favorite, special. No, favorite movie? Uh, no, I have no idea what yours is fried bean tomatoes is it really yeah okay think about it it's like part true crime part chick flick part comedy i have to say that gladiator is my favorite movie but a very 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 strong second slash first naturally is gonna be everybody else's too is the godfather like that oh yeah did you know that logan might like a so, classic like my husband logan he has never seen the godfather <sighs> like any of them well, all right. I didn't know that. I wish I would have known that before you married him. No, I'm just <laughs> no don't worry. I'm going to indoctrinate him. So, well, that was our part two of the Highway of Tears, 1980s edition. Right. Oh, Canada. Oh, Canada. Sorry that, you know, we have those highways here in America as well. But, you know, unfortunately, and this is still going on, like it's still an active. Yeah. Still to this day. Yeah, that's that's pretty fucking crazy but again can't make this shit up I'm telling you <laughs> they're true we're not making this shit up so because <laughs> you can't you can't make this up all sure. right well until next time y'all thanks for listening we really appreciate everybody who's supporting us we do okay goodbye time. bye